What's going on with dance and stuff? What's happening with dance and things? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on with dance and stuff? Can I try that again? Yeah. That was, but I mean, you know, for the, for the listeners. Here we go. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Do you need a coffee? No. Okay. What's going on with dance and stuff? What's happening with dance and things? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on with dance and stuff? Me asking you if you needed a coffee was, was really me asking me if I needed a coffee. Yeah, that's what it, it was uh, called. I was like, you're projection. the one who's not listening. <laughs> to the tone. Yeah. The first one, I, yeah, I was just, I was like, wow, I'm tired. Um, wow, well, here we are here in New are. York. I went to Metuchen for dinner last night, you guys. I don't know what Metuchen is. It's a place in New Jersey where my friend. You went to New Jersey? Yes, my friend Alan from Boy, Boy Choir School. School. We're going to have him on. Uh-huh. He, his parents lived there, and several weeks ago, he invited me to come to his parents for dinner uh-huh. because I really like his parents. I used to spend weekends there when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And his dad plays solo bells, oh, hand bells. Right. Oh, I so love. amazing. So went to his house for dinner, and it was Halloween-themed, which was great. So, like, I literally had a Halloween napkin. We ate orange oh, so food. Oh, ate in his house. So Metuchen is a place in New Jersey? Where his parents live. Oh, I thought it was a restaurant. No, 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 oh, okay. no. Went to the parents' house. Okay, got And it. had, like, a real suburban dinner. We ate, wow. like, pumpkin and bean soup, and we uh-huh. had little corn muffins with mm-hmm. honey butter. Delicious. But that was all nice. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I also even had, like, Reese's peanut butter cups at my spot. For Halloween. Oh, that's and so cute. And I got to give candy to trick-or-treaters. Was that fun? I've literally never done it. I've done it before. This was with kids. It was actually the group that I got were like high schoolers. Oh. And so I didn't even notice their costumes. I was just really curious which candies they'd want. So and I felt like a waiter. what candies did they want? Well, I had three choices. Uh-huh. I had... Milky Ways, uh-huh. Three Musketeers, uh-huh. and Welch's Fruit Snacks. And did they want the fruit snacks? That's they what wanted I want. the candy bars. Ugh. I only wanted the fruit snacks. I love a fruit snack. Me but I too. love a gummy texture. Me too, me too, me too. I love that. It makes me want to eat a bag of gummy bears right now. Oh. Um, so you, and were the teenagers nice? I think so. What, they seemed grateful. What, did the, what were some of the costume highlights? Honestly, don't know. I was too nervous. I you was were nervous. A little bit. Like, you know how like teenagers... you thought they were going to stab you or something? No, but don't teenagers uh-huh. just make you a little nervous? No. Oh. Like, on the subway, I know that's something you have, where if, like, teenagers are loud, it makes I you nervous. I don't like it. You don't like it? Whereas when teenagers are loud on the subway, it makes me just want to be like, yeah! Like, I wow. want to kind of just match their Did you pitch. see what happened to me on the subway yesterday? Queen. It was so what? crazy that it was fun. What? But what, when did that happen? Well, it happened after I took a Cunningham class, which <laughs> was like full shame spiral. Just like, oh my God, I don't know how to dance anymore. And you were there with Russell? Did Russell, Russell take class uh-huh. with you? Uh-huh. Dylan took class. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Alan Good was teaching. Uh-huh. He's a, you know, gen- 70s, 80s generation of Cunningham dancers. It was a great class. I just was like, I don't know anything. <laughs> Untrue, but you just maybe think about something else. I don't know. But then we, um, basically I was, I took class for Halloween. I was like dressed as a dancer. I like wore a unitard, except I never showed it. I just wore full bags over it. But I got to feel like a dancer. You wore a unitard that you wore full, like full bags over. Well, because Burr left it in my office at Center for Ballet and the Arts because he's had it for like five years. And I was like, oh, I'll wear that to class today. Uh So I did. But then I just wore sweatpants and a t-shirt over it. Because you felt embarrassed no i just like never thought there was a moment where it seemed appropriate to like show my old body no thank you (laughs) my old body so then um we got on the train and so it was now like two o'clock and we got 
from 57th down to like 34th and between 34th and 23rd it just done it was like oh there's a train stalled at 14th street someone pulled the emergency brake we're trying to figure it out so we sat there for like half an hour and then eventually they just started inching forward the train just inched 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 probably like a couple blocks past 23rd street and then they were like okay everybody start moving forward so there was a caravan of people. We just all started walking forward through were train cars. Were there any disabled people? That's like what I was thinking. I was like, what about people with like, a lot of stuff? Right. Or like the, an old woman with a cane, you know? Difficult. She's probably still there. But so we started walking through the doors. And then at a certain point, you had to step over into <laughs> another train. So they had bashed trains up to become one what? super tra- Because we had to walk from 23rd Street to 14th Street a on a train. super train. Yeah. So like... Snowpiercer. The train centipede. Where exactly. Where they just sort of like, where it was like ass to mouth. Yes. And then you just had to like walk from the we mouth of that train into the We had to step over a gas. <gasps> How I, big was that gap? Well, not far. And there was a conductor there making sure people didn't fall in. Was on the, to the next train. But like, what, how big is the gap? Think of the gap. Like a foot? Yeah. Three feet? No, one foot. Just a foot. Or less. Uh-huh. It's 11 inches. Did you think for a moment that you wanted to pretend to trip and be like, oh, someone help no, me? No, but I did fun. have thought of like, I wish I could step into the world of the mole people for a minute. That you could just like jump off the side and just run? Yeah. And just be like, I when I when I lived in Williamsburg back in the day, day, like when I first moved there in 2005 and there'd be an L train problem, I would think, maybe I'll just walk under... Through the tracks. Under the river. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where you just... Because you can peer down it, and I thought... At Bedford, and I thought... That's oh, interesting. Could you get in big it. trouble? Um, I think I didn't because of death. But, you know, like some... There's got to be some way I you're going to die. I honestly don't think that. you could die down there. I think there's mm. a place for you to walk for the workers. Well, you could walk the whole way, but then, you know... If the train, if a train comes, like what kind of stuff comes off it, or you, you know, you can also like, walk over the bridge, which seems you know, damn less, boring. Less, yeah. Anyone can do that. I am talking about a life-risking walk to get to rehearsal. I want to see a mole person's home. I think it would be nice. Uh-huh. Did you ever see the documentary about the mole people? I think I did, but it was so like poorly filmed and grainy that I was like, no, mm. I need high def. You want like a high, well, you know, here's another sort of documentary possibility. Did you see the Joan Didion documentary yet? No. Oh, it's so good. No you time. have to watch I had to that. go to Metuchen last night. Yeah, you had to go to Metuchen. Um, what else did I want to, so this was around that, but I mean, because we had the terrorist event in the city. We did. And, but that wasn't why the train stopped, because that no, was a. different. It was just a pulled, pulled break. <sighs> I know. But anyways, we got out. New York. I had New a York, lunch at New Peace. New York, it's lunch, a hell of a town. Yeah, lunch at Peace Food. Mm-hmm. Sean Stewart was there, obviously. Delicious. Having vegan food. Was it just you? And Russell. Oh, okay. And then Russell walked me to work here. Uh-huh. I think he was he was just killing time because he had to go to a show. Uh-huh. And Harriet and I worked, and then Matuchin. And then Matuchin. I was teaching yesterday, and uh, then came home. Well, and, we and are full of the, interest. And that was just full of, full of Halloween surprises. Right. There was something, though, that I had to ask you about. Um, um, you know, now it's not hot anymore. It's, it's cold. Really, it's cold. It's and true. And I look forward to it being cold for, for months and months. And uh-huh. then the moment it got cold, I was like, I just want to sleep. I just want to stay inside. I do not. Forever. I'm not a cold queen because I'm, I'm always cold. Like, even in the summer, my hand, I'll be like, feel my hands. And I'll be you know, like a death bones woman. And then... Today, I was like, I'm going to go to the gym. And I was wow. like, well, I try to go to the gym every day. So 
I was, I got up, I was walking to the gym, I got, I was almost there, and I thought, I want to take a hot bath. And I went home. Are you lying? I am not, and I took a hot bath. How many was, blocks is that? Um, I had walked about, the gym's like a, about a, if you're walking quickly, it's a 10 minute walk from my Will house. Will you describe like physically that moment of like walking and then turning around? Well, it had kind of begun from the moment I decided to leave the house, quite frankly. You're... I was really like, I don't want to do Did this. Did you kept looking behind yourself? Like looking for myself, gesturing back to myself, <laughs> like turning around, seeing myself being like, it's warm in the bathtub. Yeah. Well, sh- sh- that me like was in, in Harry my head. Potter number three, I think it is, where he there's a time I, machine thing. I didn't thing. watch those. There's a time travel object. No. So he at this one point he no. sees himself. It wasn't my thing. And he thinks it's yeah. his dad, but no. in reality it's himself telling, helping him do no. something. I wasn't. I just I never did watched you see those. those. I, yeah. He's Reed was asking Jeremy that I didn't. I didn't watch those shows. Um, but I. So I didn't feel like leaving. It's also gray, you know, like the lights changed. It's mm-hmm. a real like, here comes Wintra. We just have a few hours of daylight oh, every day. Oh my God. So I was like, I don't, I don't want to leave. And then, you know, I had two mugs of coffee and I was like, okay, I can do this. I need to do a cardio moment. And then I, exactly, as you're yawning, that was my right feeling. Like right through, as soon as I woke up. And then I put on my jacket I walked, I saw people like running or with a stroller. I thought, how is anyone outside right now? And then I was just about to the gym and I thought, I don't want to do this. And I thought, if today was my last day, what would I do? Mm. And I thought, not go to the gym, take a bath. So I went home and took an Epsom salts bath. It was really <laughs> hot. It felt good. And my feet felt warm again. They're cold as ice now. Even with boots on, socks. I'm wearing a sweatshirt. Do you have long a underwear? A full jacket. I need to start the long underwear. Because as right. soon as it drops below 70, I start doing that. Wow. I'm kind of... When you see this documentary of Joan Didion... Like, it's, it's you. It feels... When I'm... She's only 82. Only? Well, Jack, that's she, very, very well, old. She looks 110. I mean, have you seen her? She, it's really, you know, her breakfast of champions is, uh, she says it was always a really cold, cold, cold Coca-Cola right oh away in the morning and God. a cigarette. No, still. Uh, not anymore. Now you see her like making cucumber sandwiches and mm. uh, there's my favorite part. One of my favorite parts is Griffin is looking in the... Uh, refrigerator and he goes what's all this soup and she goes what oh, and right. he goes all this soup what is this what's all this soup and she's like what are you I think you literally told this on the last podcast oh <laughs> not many crazy. days not many days <laughs> we're not, well because we're having to double down because Jeremy's leaving to go to Thailand and Lord uh, knows we have to stock we up we won't be able to do a thing I know like, this morning Jack was like oh I, he was like we have to do them now and I was like well we can do them on our phone when Jeremy's gone and he was like but how will we upload them? And I was like, yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I called you to say that. Yeah. I was, I literally was like, I can't, I need to not text about this. I was like, we have to do this but shit now. But the amazing news is that we got to interview Lar Lubavitch oh today. Oh my God. It's already happened, you it's, guys. It's, we did the happened. interview, so you're about to get to hear it, and it's phenomenal. Oh, he is so... What a dream. Like, just a dream. He's really... Well, you're only really... You're, you've loved him, but you're really falling in love with him now, but I've yeah. loved him for years and years and years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have you have loved him for years and years and years, and I've, I've hung out with him some, and it felt very impressed by him, and also very taken care of in mm-hmm. this way by him, where I really felt... Um, as you'll hear on the, the podcast with this uh, thing he said to me after a show. Um, but he's, I'm Do so... Do you know what's amazing about him? Like, him. his clarity of memory and his 
the kind mm. of clarity of speech that he has, mm, and it's mm, so fluid. Mm. I was like, how do you do that? Well, he can, yeah, I mean, he's not, he's not just a dancer dances. Right. He, he can talk, and yeah. he can speak very well, and we would, gets it. He we, really gets All of it. the Lara Lubavitch Q&As after shows or for schools, mm-hmm. I was always like, you're, wow, mm-hmm. I, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. You just say all these words. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, he's, he's one of, he's one of the smarter ones. Yeah, um, Yeah, he's so great. I love him. I'm so excited for y'all to hear it. We're here with Laura Lubavitch. I'm so excited and Reed's so excited. And Laura, thank you for coming and meeting us. I want to know right away, where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago. You grew up in Chicago, in, Chicago, in the city? In the city, yes. And then when did you come to New York? I came to New York to go to the Juilliard School. I had been in college for one year in Iowa, in Iowa City. And I discovered dance and then I matriculated to Juilliard. You discovered dance while in undergrad in Iowa? Yes. So late. Very late. Wow. You were just gifted. You were just you were you were you were born with the right bones. That was also Peter Sparling's story. We just spoke with him. Mm. Did you know Peter? Peter Sparling? So we all went to Interlochen together Uh at different times. Uh We were all just back at at alumni weekend and we interviewed Peter for for that episode. Yeah, but but he he also started when he was at Interlochen and they were like oh you're turned out and he was like I'm gonna dance but he wanted to make dances really how did you find it in Iowa was it a dance class um I was a gymnast and uh, I was an art major but I was visual art yes I Uh was a gymnast also and uh, a woman came to the gymnastics workout and asked if any men wanted to lift some women around (laughs) (laughs) and and you were like well (laughs) so I I was willing to try anything and so I went, and it turned out to be actually dance, and right. it just thunderstruck me. And what? then I saw dance for the first time. I saw uh, a dance company that came through the university. It was a Limon company, uh-huh. yes. In Iowa? In Iowa City, yes. And you were yeah. like, I like that. Oh, I was completely um, taken. I was, it was like one of those moments where you realize what you were meant to be. Yeah. Wow. And then you, you had to audition for Juilliard. Yes, I did have to audition for Juilliard. But wasn't yes. it like the first? It was like kind of their first iteration of a dance school at that time? No, the dance school had been going on for at least 10 years. Oh, or more. okay. Yeah, I think the late 40s is when the oh, or early 50s old. is when this uh, dance school was established. And this was in 1960. And who were your teachers? My teachers were Martha Graham oh. and Jose Limon and Anna Sokolo and Lucas Hoving, who was a great Limon dancer. Wow. And. Um, Members of the Martha Graham Company and Anthony Tudor. Right. Wow. And right. Then, this was the same with Peter that Anthony was there when right. he was there. And, and who were your classmates? Well, one of my classmates was Jerry Houlihan. Oh yeah. Oh. We auditioned together. <gasps> and um, Dennis Nahat, who eventually became director of the Cleveland Ballet. Wow. Um, Diane Gray, who became a very well-known Graham dancer in her day. Yeah. Mary Barnett, who became a leading rehearsal director with the Ailey Company. Jennifer Muller, mm-hmm. Martha Clark. Wow. Eva Cohen. Lar. Yeah, there were a lot of interesting people in that class. Who were you friends with in that class? I was, I was quite good friends with Martha Clark right. and Eva Cohen. I was curious about that, because have you stayed in touch with Martha? I mean... No. No, we, we really? crossed paths over the years, but uh-huh. you know, everybody's journey takes them in 
very different directions. Right. Right. But quite good friends with Jerry Houlihan, probably my best friend. Well, she's so. I got yeah. to meet. I was at ADF a few years ago, and so I spent time with her then. And she's yeah, remarkable. We, we auditioned together, as a matter of fact. And the girl who auditioned between us did a toe tap while playing the marimba. Wow. She didn't, I don't, what she happened didn't, to her? She didn't make it in. She didn't make <laughs> no, it in. Anna Circle ripped her a new one. And <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. 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 You may not know the real Anna Circle. I'm sure you've all heard of her, but uh, mm-hmm. yes. she was a, a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, well, she came out of Graham. I mean, that was... Yes, yeah, she was one of those 30s Graham yeah. dancers, but then yeah. she went on Pre her own. Pre the torso. Pre yeah, Eric. That's right. right. And she went on her own very fierce, dramatic path. Yeah. Opened the doors to a lot of movement ideas that had never been. Yeah. Explored before. Were you making dance on Jerry from right off the bat when you were at school? Like, was she a part of of your process of becoming a choreographer? Uh, well, when I started dancing, I knew I was meant to be a choreographer. And, How did you know that? Um, because when I saw choreography, I knew it's what I would do because it was art and gymnastics all put right. together, kind of. Right. And when I think back, I say that now. I didn't think that then. It just looked inevitable. Right. Well, because you'd been you had come as a visual artist. I mean, not dissimilar from. I mean, it may, immediately makes me think of David Lynch, mm-hmm. of someone who was beginning as a visual artist, but then want, needed to have the bodies, and needed stories to happen. And and when I the first piece of yours I saw was we'll get to this in a bit, but was <laughs> North Star. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was the first piece because I remember Jenna doing that that solo that I was obsessed with. Right? I remember you telling me I was really going to love this solo. The, <laughs> yeah. The witch solo. The solo I would have been the like, witch. The, 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 the solo I'd be like, Laura, I, I want to do that one. Um, that I one. bet you could well, too. That's probably one of the yeah. only things out of your repertoire I could do because Lord knows I can't get a leg up very high. It's an extreme amount um, of tension. But an extreme amount of tension and specificity, I, I can do that. Um, but I, I remember thinking at that time, it's so visual. It was, it, was, it was so arresting, so visual, and it imprinted on me in the way that I've, it's something that, where my mind jumped with David Lynch there. But anyhow, so it makes sense that in seeing Lamone, seeing the bodies moving in space, that that would start to become the genesis. So at Juilliard, off of Reed's question, is that when you started? Because you, you probably had composition class then, too. I did, with, with Anthony Tudor. Amazing. And with, with um, legendary Louis Horst, who had been right. Martha Graham's what was mentor for many like? decades. I mean, she referred to him as the wall that she uh, could grow on or yeah. throw herself against. He was uh, very severe. Yes. He didn't say much, and he um, only said what was relevant and um, uh, caustic, yeah. <laughs> but true. Was there was, anything that he said that really imprinted on you into your choreography and still no I don't remember anything work. he said <laughs> I was hoping for me I was like maybe he told Lars something that'll really help me now but no, no actually I think Anthony Tudor was a much more profound influence on me in terms of my eventual future as choreographer was it a systematic approach to composition no not at all but but the one thing that he made clear is to the dancers which I say to this day and, and, and hold close to my heart, is don't dance to the music, be the music. Right. And, right. and being the music was his approach to choreography also. Right. Yeah. Wow. No. Which is something that obviously I love and Reed really loves as well. I mean, that's a place that Reed and I certainly cross mm. over. Well, not, not everybody regards music as, a, as the floor of dance any longer. Right. Many people don't. You know, only a few of us are sort of charging forward in the old tradition. <laughs> Well, and and at the same time, though, I mean, it's 
I said, perhaps it's old in in that way, but to me, it's uh, I, I I view it more in that Martha ancient. It's it. It has such a lineage pre-Western concert. Well, it'll dance. always be here. Correct. It'll always be here, but there's so many other aspects of dance now. Right. And dance has liberated itself from music yeah. in the last several decades in a yeah. marvelous way and produced extraordinary work that couldn't have been done to music. Right. Correct. So, when you left Juilliard, uh, did you dance for people? I danced for a lot of people, yes. I danced for... Um, Glenn Tetley and John Butler, Donald McHale. And at that time, they all had their own groups in New York? You know, at that time, um, one performance in New York was a New York season, and two days on the road was a tour. Uh There there was no dance world then. There were a few of us who danced because we were obsessed with it, and any chance we got to do it was what we did. Mm. Nobody earned their living by dancing. It wasn't even feasible. What did you do for a living? Uh, I waited tables and I ran a little coffee shop and I did sometimes did office temporary work and uh, I actually uh, the closest I got to dance was as a go-go dancer at Trudy Heller famous nightclub <laughs> in the village of the twisting days. What was the company called? Well, there was no what company. Was the, not the company. The go- I mean the club. I was like, it was the club. Come and see it. Just to show you how I run my the company. Name of, <laughs> the name of the club was Trudy Heller's. It was Trudy Heller. And she was a, a kind of. A, amazing character, very husky, gravelly, whiskey-voiced lesbian. And um, she ran this club. It had mafia connections. And she had a cadre of six dancers who took turns getting up on a small ledge behind the tables. (laughs) And and for security, you held on to doorknobs that were screwed to the wall behind you. (laughs) And you just did, you know, your version of the the latest dance. What did you wear? The twist, the frug, the the monkey, the Boston monkey, the the pony, all those things. I I knew all of those. I still know them. And And outfits. Outfits. We were required to wear white bell-bottom pants and a red turtleneck jersey. Oh, so wow. you got to wear clothes. You didn't have to be. A, you didn't no, have to be in a, just a swimsuit. No, or a, it wasn't. I worked at one other belt. club though, in which we were required to dance in cages that hung over the audience. <laughs> you worked in that in a <laughs> like club like that. Massive bird cages. Yeah. And what did you wear in that? Um, this club was run by her son, Joel Heller, and it was actually around the corner. And I think it was called The Cage, if I'm not mistaken. Where is there not a documentary about these two? <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm signing the rights right now, Netflix. If Netflix, if you wanted to, this documentary, you would have to go through Lara Lubavitch and me. Okay. And, and actually, we wore the same outfits. Oh, wow. Okay. And white boots, by all means. Right, right, that right, was right. De rigueur. That was absolutely like the element you had to have. Dancing in, I love picturing doing these dances in a cage suspended above people, but in a turtleneck and yeah. bell bottoms with white And boots. this was the beginning of the 70s? Uh, no, this was the early 60s. Oh, right. it was very long ago. Yes. The, the, the early 60s. The twist was the social dance that changed dance, so changed social dance forever. Mm. And it uh, started this incredible generation of music and dance that led step by step through all these incredible dance forms that were amazing to me and fascinating. In fact, I had been a dancer for some time. I was working a lot of different dance companies. Didn't expect to pay myself with dance companies. But one of the true hellers I was dancing, I felt very, very free. And I said, mm-hmm. oh my God, this is what it feels like to really dance. I said, well, then right. I always have to feel this free. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, Where did you live at the time? I lived in a one-room apartment in the Diamond District on 47th and 6th Avenue. And I shared the streets at night with many prostitutes <laughs> who stood in the doorways of all the diamond stores that were closed at night. Wow. I knew a couple of them pretty well, and they were very nice to me. Well, 
That's great. And you had your own place. I did. Was it like $20 a month? It was $86.05 a month. That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible. But it was dicey in Manhattan at the time. It was. Manhattan was was very rugged at that time, and streets were very dangerous. And um, my street always felt very safe because of all the prostitutes. Mm -hmm. Who look out for each other and for you. Yeah, absolutely. And you could eat dinner in Times Square, which I often did, which was food, I wouldn't call it dinner, but you could get two hot dogs for 50 cents wow. and, a, and a, a little paper dish of beans that goes with it. Or you could get, or you could get um, 12 cherry stone clams for $1.50. Cherry scary clams on the street. <laughs> street clams. I love it. I mean, right, right out of the East River. Nom, nom, nom. <laughs> that is so incredible. I mean, it must be so... And now you live in Chelsea, so you've been here... And watch, I mean, I've lived here since the late 90s, and Reed has lived here, you grew up here in the 80s. Yeah. yeah, so the way in which we've all watched the city change, mm. obviously you've seen, We I didn't get to grow up with, um, I didn't get to be living here rather with uh, clams from the East River <laughs> on, on the street after coming home from whatever club I was coming home from. But that must be, I mean, how, how has that been for you in terms of looking at the city's change? Um, I think the change is wonderful. I love, yeah. I love change, yeah. and it's always a surprise. You cannot predict or guess where it's going. Yeah. I think the latest manifestation is not as interesting as Correct. the many versions I've seen along the way because yeah. it's become very um, um, real estate oriented, yeah. and, and real estate doesn't change in a natural rhythm anymore. It used to be the artists inhabited a poor neighborhood. Yeah. They brought a certain cadre of people there. The neighborhood became recognized. It grew to became like Soho, for instance, or the East Village, and and then realtors realized that they could fake that and they could make it look like the artists had had mm. done it. But and now you get fabricated neighborhoods like the meat market and things right. like that, you right. know, which were invented overnight in a real estate table and right. marvelous to look at, all for tourists. But it's it's, it's not a place tourists. real New Yorkers put their heart and soul in. Yeah, and this and, uh, and the kind of the lack of art. For sure. When did so then back? When did the company format of of when did you notice that oh there are these companies that you can it can become non for profit or they're going to have a board of directors you're going to be this will be a job this is something and how did that segue into you having did were you in someone else's company first or did you found your company well, first was or was it sort of happening? I, the same I was time? in these many small companies because right. if, if you were a man dancing in New York at that time you danced with everybody right. Because simply being a man dancing, you didn't audition. It wasn't that kind of thing. Everybody knew everybody. Mm-hmm. And often it was the teachers who were choreographing, having little companies. Pearl Lang, Bertram Ross, who was the leading Graham dancer. Donnie McHale, I was in his company when I was my first year at Juilliard. He asked me to work with him. So I was in a lot of different companies. I was a natural dancer, so the training was important, but I could dance. Mm-hmm. So, so I got to dance early on. Right. And these were little companies, and then there were... A couple of major companies, like the Jose Limon Company, the Martha Graham Company, and I was exposed to Balanchine early on by the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And um, I regret very much that I knew nothing of Grand Union and what was going on mm. at Judson Church. And it was happening mm. right then, right. but nobody told me and nobody huh. Juilliard talked about <laughs> that because I think it was an opposing camp and it was... Um, it just wasn't available, so I didn't know. It took me years to find out about that, which I, I wish I had known much sooner, of course. Yeah, did you ever, had, did you meet Fred Herco or? I actually did know Fred Herco, only because okay. he was friends with dancers in the Graham Company. Mm. Right. 
what do you do you remember what do you remember of him? I mean only because he's I didn't sort of, know him well. I know that you did a piece yeah, um, about him. About, I didn't know him well. I met him a couple of times. He was very uh, gregarious and very lively. Right. Very funny. And um, I think even then I realized very troubled. Yeah. He had like a dark energy that you could feel. And one of his good friends also committed suicide, who was a dancer in the Graham Company, who was a great leading dancer named Robert Powell. Right. Many of you wouldn't know today, but he was a new kind of modern dancer. Mm. Because up until then, all the men in the Graham Company were kind of hulky, Mm -hmm. kind of... um, Muscle-bound. Muscle-bound guys who lifted Martha around. And and beautiful dancers like Merce and and Eric had been there, of course. But um, uh, Bob was um, lithe, and he could do amazing jumps. And his body could do all the things that only the female Graham dancers could Mm. do. His body seemed to do all of those things. And he died very tragically. He jumped out of a window in a hotel. Wow. As well. Another window. Yeah. 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 Were you organizing groups of your own dancers to be making dances at the same time you were working for all these other people? No, I really was intent on dancing for a few years. My plan was that I would have to learn how to dance and that I would have to dance for a few years and then at a certain moment I'd know I could make a dance. But it was kind of a a strategy I had. And what were the first dances you made and what were they like? The very first concert I gave was in 1968, which mm-hmm. was 50 years ago, and this is the 50th anniversary of my work as choreographer and as a company. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> no, no small feat. And I can't wait for, I mean, the, and you look incredible. That's always important to say. Well, I the mean, most important thing stunning. to say. <laughs> so, and so as handsome. Only, as you so handsome. With it, you, may, will. you may exaggerate as much as you we wish. Have, we have that right there, and we will have a oh, photo shit. going out. I mean, the fact <laughs> it's, it's always a treat to sit across from a table and look into your eyes. But go on. Oh, so I gave my first concert in 1968. I actually had gotten into a company that paid a salary. Uh, I thought of myself as a modern dancer, Hmm. but I started studying ballet from the get-go also. And I had a chance to get into a ballet company, and it was a job, and it was the Harkness Ballet. Right. And uh, I actually was earning $330 a week. And wow. that was all it took. Rich. So that is, yeah, that, is that, that ballet wow. money, honey. Wow. Yeah. Oh, sure. I could yeah. buy new tights even. Yeah, exactly. Like that. And there my hunger to choreograph really, really became strong. And so I took a leave of absence to do a dance concert. And I took dancers who were my friends at the time, Lance Westergaard, who I'd gone to Juilliard with, and a young woman named Kathleen Carlin, both of them wonderful dancers. And... Uh, I did a first concert, and I did three dances. Um, I don't know what to say about them. Just the three of you? Was it? Yes, it was just the three of us. I did a dance based on Joseph Albert's Uh paintings, and I designed and constructed a set of diminishing squares, might have aluminum rods with velvet squares in front of them to depict the Albert's color balance and lifted each square to reveal each dancer, and then we made a dance about it somehow the hell or other. No <laughs> records of those dances. I was just about to ask, and <laughs> no. that pains me. No. That there are photographs. That pains, there's photographs, there great. I want to see those. I mean, it's... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something and stick a pin in it, which is about dances that I see recently that are being made now that feel uh, derivative of 
work that has yeah, already well, happened in the, 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 the late way, 50s and into the 60s. Well, the way, the way dance is, you're always reinventing the wheel in dance. Right. A young choreographer, some talent guy, girl, makes a dance. They think it's great, and it's, they've discovered all these ideas. I've seen that so many I, times. It's a real, get there's, a dramaturg. There's Just barely an idea have, they can pull out yeah. that Someone, we haven't yeah. seen over the right. years, but you don't know because... Dance is, you know, hard to hard to follow and hard to record, hard to pass forward. Where did you do that? It's something sure? that we're hoping to do, by the way, with this podcast. But anyhow, where did you? Do <laughs> I did that at the YMHA. Sure. That was one of the only theaters in New York City What's where you that? could dance. YMHA. Oh, uh, Kaufman Concert Hall in Ninety Second. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> and that's where many people had done their one or two or early concerts. And and also from downtown. I mean, also from the from Judson. I think that's where Yvonne and Fred Herco actually did with Bill. Yeah, at the same oh, that is absolutely yeah. true. Yeah, so it was kind of a place you Yvonne could Rainer, experiment. For those who are the stage was very tiny, but it, I think it was um, twenty-four feet wide and eighteen feet deep, something like that. Was Still it is. an hour long? Your show? It was three dances with two intermissions. Two intermissions. Yeah. Wow. How long <laughs> was that one? So each one was like twenty minutes. Yeah, something like you that. You needed yeah. a break because you had to dance in them. Yes, right. I did have to dance. With and them. what kind of dance? Well, um, my my body, what it does. Uh-huh. It always did something. Actually, before I started dancing in the realm of the professional dance world, I did dance, but I didn't know people did it. Right. I just did it myself. Right. I did it in my living room. Right. I made Same. Up, I made up dances on the kids in the neighborhood. Right, right, right. <laughs> things like that. Yeah. I didn't know what I was yeah. doing. It was just fun. It was, a, it was a way of playing. Yeah. So I had a physical sensibility. I had a physical identity of my own. And thinking of those, for, I mean, because, and had you, in terms of your introduction to Balanchine, had you had that by this point you did this mm-hmm. concert? And yes, what I did. was that relationship like? Well, my relationship to Balanchine and my own work. Well, your relationship, A, evolved just with, with Balanchine, seeing the stances, and and then with George, and then well, also into well, your Well, this work. is what happened. I was at Juilliard. I knew nothing about dance. I, I had seen some dance the summer before, because I went to American Dance Festival in New London, Connecticut, which is where it originated. Right. And that's where I actually met Martha Graham and Jose Limon, and they were the teachers there. And I was encouraged to audition for Juilliard. I got in Juilliard, and uh, New York State Theater, which is now the Coke Theater, much to my regret. Well, I just keep calling it the State Theater. Had just been finished. It was, it was the uh, first building finished at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. And um, Tudor was having work on the New York City Ballet on opening night of New York State Theater, with New York City Ballet. Oh, how things have changed. Yes, how things have changed. Beautiful, beautiful dance called Dim Luster that was very profoundly beautiful, but of course it was a balancing program besides that. And I did, um, I, I was thunderstruck by what I saw. I, I didn't know dance could do that and be that. And, did, and then did you meet with with people from the company as well? No, no, I had yeah. no exposure to balancing or as dancers. Nor did I think I could ever rise to that. <laughs> I just knew that I had to do something in dance. And, and, but, and then you would. I mean, that's a... But then you have... I mean, in terms of... Well, at least certainly in the ballet world. I mean, you have set so many pieces now. I have I have worked in both worlds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you... I mean, that was my curiosity with this early concert was how much ballet influence there was or this was still just coming from your you own know, genesis this is, of... this is what's relevant and I think true even if it's uh, me speaking of myself and my place and well, that's what I want. whatever we call dance history, <laughs> right. is that when I started dancing, and you've probably heard this tale before, 
ballet and modern were opposing camps, right. and you could not do one if you did the other. Mm. You were told, in fact, that your ability, your technique to do one would be ruined if you infused your body with the other. Right. And I was a modern dancer because I started late, and I knew I could never catch up and do all those beautiful balletic things, and I didn't want to do athletics anyway. I wanted to just be free to dance, and those big athletic tricks looked very scary and limiting to me as mm -hmm. far as feeling free. So I was a modern dancer, but I was studying ballet, and I loved it. I loved doing it the way it felt, just the relationship to music, everything about it was a beautiful sensation. Right. But I didn't want to be that, right. but I had it in my body and I felt it. And then I decided to choreograph. And the war was sort of still on, and I was one of the first choreographers to start the third stream of choreography that put together both modern and ballet vocabularies in a seamless way. So whether or not anybody has said that or recognized it, I'm saying it. <laughs> I believe it. We believe, I believe you. I, I, fully, I believe that is true. Not only do I believe it, I, I completely agree. I mean, and I, I, the work speaks to that. And you can look back on your work and at least what's available in terms of online and, and pretty far back to see that. Um, well, this this was the thing. I was doing, I'd never danced before, and suddenly I was doing all of this dance. I was doing ballet, I was doing modern, and I was quite excellent at Afro-Haitian dance. And in fact, danced with Pearl Primus, what? who was one of the leading Afro-Haitian <laughs> companies. Like I was the only white dancer in it. Wow. Laura. And then I was a go-go dancer, supporting right. myself because none of this paid. And doing popular, yeah. what we would call popular and dance. So when I started right. choreographing, and I had this experience uh, on the ledge at Trudy Heller's, where I said, well, this is free. This is yeah. what it feels like to really yeah. dance. So I said, well, I have all this, I consciously discussed with myself, I had all this language, why did I have to pick and choose? Correct. Right. And, and that's something, so, that, I mean, that's something that I've really loved with your work. It's something that I have felt in my own work that I, that I wanted to be cross-discipline and that I also, I remember I was, when you're talking about dancing on the ledge, I was thinking about how we used to go to Greenhouse and go out dancing. Mm -hmm. Green, I used to go to this club and, and dance. And when I started teaching, I would tell my students to go somewhere where they could get in, because if they're under 21, then they'll not be able to get in, but to try and go somewhere where they can dance for two hours straight to music and to mm. not be afraid of how people are viewing them. Because so much of, you know, the social construct of wanting to be beautiful or wanting everyone to look at you and then you become mannered or can get still yes. are these things that I can Absolutely, see yeah. in terms of uh, concert dance, of yeah. where it doesn't, it's lacking a catharsis that I originally found in Graham. Mm. And then... Uh, became afraid of how my choreography might look to right. an audience right. that then I refound again through going out dancing mm. with Reed. So I that genesis makes so much sense to yeah. me. Yeah. I also feel like your, what I know of your early work, it is like, seems a little bit more conceptual than what, what mm. ended up happening. I feel like ballet came into it even more as time went on. And is that true? Am I just making that up? Um, like I, I don't think I, I don't think I'd be, well yes you may be right actually I don't think I'd be the best judge of that because I can't critique the history of what I've done because I've done it right and and things that I hear about what I've done like the things you're saying which are of course marvelous to hear and <laughs> <laughs> you know who wouldn't love to hear all this lovely complimentary talk but well, I, wait till you hear the podcast before this one when we talk about <laughs> you without you being here those are always the best compliments but i don't think i'm the best judge of what i've done in, in terms of my progression or why i've graduated to one thing over another i just kept putting one foot in front of another mm -hmm. and did what was next i actually didn't look too far forward it was very hard to make a dance and i put everything i had into it at the moment each dance and 
then when it was finished, I gathered myself together and thought about what my next dance would be. But I never like thought about it analytically, like, oh, I want to put this, or no, I want to use more ballet, or right. I just went with whatever felt. What musicians next. were you using at the beginning? What music were you making dances to? When I first started making music, I was very into uh, obscure and more experimental music, mm-hmm. and. Um, I was already putting in, doing mixtape stuff, mm-hmm. which was, nobody had really done that. The first dance I did at um, YMHA, uh, of those three, one was called Freddy's Bag, and it was a dramatic story of a man <laughs> caught with a, um, uh, a break in a, a psychotic break with another personality kept in a bag. And, <laughs> and this, this dancer, Kathleen Carlin, who was very, very small, she was less than five feet, she played the alter ego I kept in the, in the bag. bag. Yeah. And every now and then she, again, she'd emerge and make a great deal of trouble. And, <laughs> and I put it, I, I created a score for it, a mixtape score. In those days, you could take reel-to-reel tapes and you'd have to cut it with a little razor and put in this little thing, put a little tape over it. And eventually you could have a, it took a long, long time, <laughs> but eventually you could make a, you know, a sound did. score. And sound now you score. just have GarageBand. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> now you can just do GarageBand. Yeah. Hard and it's, do just, it's just great. I mean, all the, the, in the history of your, wait, go, sorry. Go no, I'm just that I started with very obscure experimental feelings about music and then I did little by little graduate towards more lyrical music and um, um, particularly beautiful music. Was that because you felt like you had more skills to approach this kind of older music? In a way it was, yes, because there are pieces of music that I held dear to my heart that I loved deeply that I'd known since I was a child because when I painted I always put the radio on and put classical music on Mm. and I used to do that through the night, like I didn't sleep much. I, would, I, was, I was doing oil paintings when I was 9, 10, 11 years old. And I'd find this classical music. And some of that music really stuck with me. And then when I started dancing, started choreographing, I found that music and I said, well, maybe someday, you know, I'll, I'll do that music. But maybe I did feel that I could rise to the occasion 10, 15, 20, 30 years later. Mm. I mean, in terms, and while I know you feel you can't uh, critique the, in terms of the, past and in terms of your work and it's and what's happened and and the history of it in terms of dance history we I mean I can see at least when you're talking about starting and making work it was in the 68 right 68 when I did my first concert I'd been experimenting with work for several years and in in terms of these last 50 years it is for sure where we can see this sort of renaissance quality with dance of the cross-disciplinary of people of the of modern and ballet starting to coalesce into this thing that then started to get ter- called contemporary. Yes. Of course, I'm speaking just about Western Yes, dance. and of course, the, the, the Judson string yep. infused. Yeah. People picked up that language, and people take it for granted now right. that you can use all that. But right. when I started, it it just wasn't so. Not only could, could you not use it, but only one or two or three languages existed. And what was that? And do you remember certain things inside of that that felt like a struggle with audiences, with critics, with the dancers, with other choreographers? I mean, did it feel like a struggle as this was all happening? I mean, now it still it still exists. We still have people. There's still people downtown who really don't want to even think about City Ballet or ABT or, or go to see them and vice versa. And while there's some 
still a dialogue between these states. It's uh, it's still around. So in, uh, did oh, you? Oh, that's a shame. I'm I'm sorry for them. It's still yeah, yeah, <laughs> me too. No, because Tell me about there's it. a great deal of beauty in the world of dance. Yeah, in it, both in it, both places, it, it, in all of them. Right. It's it's it can't be exhausted. There's beauty everywhere. Right. And um, I think if you're going to create. You want to put into your eyes as much beauty as you can right. possibly receive so that you can put it out. Your own version of beauty. I'm using beauty in a very general right, term. Right, right. But did you notice that, con- I mean, what was that conflict like during that time? Um, well, yes, people were, did take positions. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, my very first concert, a rather well-known choreographer booed in the audience. I won't mention names. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Booed. Yeah. Booed after booed. each section? Or uh, just after? I think it was after the whole concert. Just booed. That's great. Wow. Yes. You got booed. That's, and how did you feel um, when that happened? Very bad. Oh. I don't take judgment lightly. Right. right, right. <laughs> how old were you at this, for this concert? I was, well, if it was 50 years ago, then I was 24, 25, right. 24. Still in the 20s. Yeah. Whereas in the 30s, maybe it would have been like, Good. Hate it. No, no, it got worse and worse. I'm more vulnerable to uh, bad critiques today than I've ever been. Oh, well, we should hang out. I get get bad (laughs) reviews all the time. Well, you might remember that after you got a terrible view, I came to see you and I said, be proud, you because did. now you're free. You really did. I remember because you don't have to please anybody who said how great talked, your work was. We just talked about it in the last in the in that last podcast, and that meant the world to me. Something that we also Jack talked, hates getting bad reviews too. I well, mean, he won't say it, but it kills yeah. him. I hate it. It's, it's not that it kills me. It's it makes you want to kill the critic. <laughs> what this is what it is. It's neither of those. What it what it really is is. What feels so unfortunate to me is that there are people within that are incredibly limited in their education and knowledge of the form. That uh, I can think of critics who do not understand anything about theater, and I use theater in my work. And I can think of critics who know nothing about dance, and I use dance in my work, and who know literally nothing about performance art. If I was to ask them a few questions about the Viennese actionists, I'd make myself totally clear. Mm. So the fact that someone like that has a position in a paper that's read throughout this country and internationally is disgusting. It, it and is. that it's, uh, it's is appalling. the thing that I can yeah. be upset about and have just cause to be upset about. Yeah. No, it's appalling, really. Yeah. And, and I agree with everything you said. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Thank you. But the thing that is true, and when you said that, is... Because what happened at that time was you said that to me and I received an email from someone who that work had really helped them. He uh-huh. had been suicidal. He had just started therapy. He was mm-hmm. coming out. Uh-huh. And so it, what it did do, and the thing that I guess the thing I would say mm-hmm. artist to artist is the, I was reminded of, I had thought until that point I was making my work for everyone. I'd really had thought that I was making my work for everyone. And it showed me that I'm not. And that I'm actually making my work for the person who needs it the most. Well, you are echoing Martha Graham's famous statement that we dance for the one, not the many. Right. And she she said that in response to something that she happened. I think it's known to be a true story. Her famous dance, Lamentations, which is known worldwide in the purple tube, where she just took shapes, really. She didn't make faces or create dramatic um, curved you know, curled eyebrows, and she just made shapes of lamentation. And people didn't know what the hell she was doing. This was 1929 or 1930, something like that. And she said that 
she came backstage after doing it one day and a woman was waiting for her and the woman was weeping and she said, um, my son died and I haven't been able to cry until I saw your dance. So whether those things are connected, Martha Graham was then known to have said that famous phrase, we dance for the one, not the many. It's always, I remember reading it in Blood Memory and it gave me such a chill when mm-hmm. you said it because also knowing that you knew her and come from that of, of it's just the the depth of what dance theater performance can do in terms of its healing that is that is my investment that's very clearly your investment those are the people who I'm interested in those are the yeah. artists I'm interested in and so and I can and I am opposed to the people who are uninterested in it that's because that's just <laughs> how it goes as I've also said before I but run when, on two tracks love and vengeance but when you go in the studio and you shut yeah. the door behind you all you can do is consult your abilities to the that's best right. you can and do the very hard task of making a work of movement art yeah. and whether it's for the one or the many you can't even give regard to that possibility I love that all you can do is accept your limitations work within them to the best of your ability yeah. and then Take the curtain up and let them speak. Oh, Lord. Was there a show or a a particular piece at which you thought, oh, I'm going to, I can make a living from being a choreographer and this is, this is going to be it. Like now I have enough recognition that this can be my life. I had the good fortune of being asked to make dances for other companies almost in time that I began choreographing. Oh, wow. I, I believe my first concert attracted a lot of attention mm-hmm. because there were so few people making dances, really. And the ones who had been making dances had been doing it for a while. And then I went and put posters around town, and I, I was very <laughs> audacious, and you know, I made three dances, and, and everybody came to see them. Wow. And I guess I was um, recognized early on, so I started getting invitations within that first year. First thing I did was was invited to Israel to make a dance for the Backdoor Ballet, which happens to be Whirly Gogs, which you mentioned oh, earlier. Yeah. And then I, from there, I was invited to go to Lisbon to the Gulbenkian Ballet and I made a dance to them, and called some of the reactions, some of the time, of some of the people upon hearing the words of the birth of the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good Very title. Long. Goodness and, knows, I love a good title, Lauren. And That's so a good one. I actually, up until I gave that concert. I had been in the Harkness Ballet for two years, so I started earning enough money. From that time on, I didn't do any other jobs. I was getting commissions. And the next year, I was on a six, nine-week tour of my own work. And did you ever go back to the Harkness Ballet after that? Uh, no. That was it? No. I meant to go back, but the director of the company at the time was a man named Benjamin Harkarvey, mm-hmm. who'd been director of Juilliard, had directed Pennsylvania Ballet, had been one of the founders of Netherlands Dance Theater. Right wonderful, great, wise man, and he advised me not to come back. Hmm. He said, what you have to do, you won't be allowed to do here, hmm. and and you should just accept the responsibility of doing it on your own. And I was very hurt. I was very insulted, actually, because it was my home at the moment, Arcus Ballet, but he was so right. Hmm. He was so absolutely right. And you did a long concert tour of your pieces. The second and year. Was this funded uh, by the National Endowment? or No, the National Endowment didn't exist yet. Okay. Uh, there was an agent in the audience, my first concert, his name was Harold Shaw. He was a big agency, I don't remember the name, it was the York Agency, Saul York. Saul York had booked Martha Graham for many years. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, he said, as I recall, he said something about there was a burgeoning market for dance at universities. Oh, okay. 
that was opening up, that, that there were dance departments forming universities, which is also very new. When I was at the University of Iowa, there's no dance department. We went to the women's gym and we rehearsed there, and there was a group called the Orcasis, which was the popular name for ladies who danced in gyms as their, their <laughs> gym class. And uh, so he actually booked a tour for us. Wow. wow. Did yeah. you find dancers along the way on these tours, or did people come to you? No, they were all my friends. Just New York people? Yeah, people I'd done class with and who were looking for a voice. Because in those days, if you were a dancer, you didn't dance with a lot of people. The objective then was to find your choreographer, the one who spoke the voice you wanted to speak as a dancer. And when you got there, you stayed there. Mm-hmm. And I found those dancers who wanted to be with me, and my early dancers all stayed 9, 10, 12, 14 years. Wow. And then the dance world grew, and people started freelancing, and other ideas of how to be a dancer came, came afoot. But originally, if you were a modern dancer, it was to find your choreographer. And certainly with ballet, you were in a company. Yeah, so it was, that's right. The, it was also the same. And so how, when did... Or have you felt secure in your company that it's that it coalesced at a certain point? I mean, you have a board of directors, right? Or did that uh, happen early on? Well, I, I had a company for a while, which was it was a company, but I didn't know it was a company, but it was a company mm-hmm. <laughs> because it wasn't very well defined what that particular paradigm was yet. Right. But then the National Endowment of the Arts was created, and National Arts created the dance touring program, and from that moment on began what is a well-known historically is the dance boom. Well, once the boom hit, there was work for everybody. Wow. And we were touring, and and uh, there was we were able to pay dancers. I mean, my early dancers didn't get paid anything. They all had other jobs, too. Right, right. Um, but the dance boom really, the dance world flourished enormously, quickly because of that. And um, then dance departments were opening all over universities. It all changed. It all what changed. years was, did this start? I think the dance, I think National Endowment was formed in 1968, the year I did my first concert. Mm-hmm. I believe that was when it all began. I was there at, you know, to light the fuse of the boom. Mm. And then the boom, and, and what would you, how long would you say the boom went? Or would you say we're still in it? Um, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't feel like we are, but in, you know, comparatively. I, I would say that we are in the result of it. Right. It doesn't have the, um, excuse the pun, the fervor that it once had um, because it's become so much wider Mm. and so much broader. The dance community has so many different raison d'etre now, Mm. each individual choreographer. There's purely uh, tour-worthy commercial work, whose work is governed by the taste of the sponsors who bring them. There are people who work downtown who are working in purely in the more of the pure art form or it's the place we've always looked to the lab work right you know to to keep dance growing but but there are so many echelons of dance now that are all the result of the boom but no longer part of the boom but the boom went on until the national endowment became um uh, a thorn in the side of the Republican Party. In the 80s, yeah. And it was Reagan, I think, who began dismantling it and closing it down, giving less money to it. And, and Jesse and Helms. I mean, lest God we forget. <laughs> lest we forget. Dead, dead, dead. <laughs> Thank but, God. But dance wasn't going to be stopped because of right. that. Right, It right. just had to, had to find many more ways to exist. Right. Then boards of directors became necessary because you had to have 
nonprofit tax exempt. Many foundations were created to support the arts. Right, because you were existing when you didn't. I mean, in terms of the NEA, before the NEA four, you could have it as a solo artist. Mm-hmm. It was post the NEA four when Jesse Helms came after That's Karen right. Finley at all. Yeah. That that all dissolved, and That's they right. needed to have this board of That's directors right. who you were going to do to, business. Yep, you had to do oh, business. Right. And what was that like for you? Well, that was difficult because. Yeah. Um, I, I've never been a businessman. I don't have that kind of sensibility or that kind of practicality. Um, and so I've relied on uh, others who have those skills. My long, long-term wonderful executive director, Richard Caples, and many wonderful managers along the way for the last 10 years, and uh, Tisha Barad. These are marvelous people who give themselves over to dance, who do the business side. But I've never been good at business. And many parts of the business side of my work, I have debilitated by being unwilling or unable to join in. <laughs> I get it. So they've had to work next to me, but not with me very well. Right. And uh, I will never sit in front of a wealthy person and ask for money. Right. It's the most humiliating thing I possibly imagine. We're from the Midwest. We can't stand it. I've never done it. I've never done a private ask. I can't bear the yeah. idea. It but there are those. Nauseous. There are those who have learned to do that and yeah. been educated to do that because they're younger and they didn't know that I, I came I first. Could. I'm just, there's something in the fiber of my yeah. DNA that yeah. I appreciate you can't fight from you it. as well. You can't fight it. Yeah. But consequently, the business of the dance has gotten much larger than the art of dance. Isn't it true? Absolutely. Yeah. The business yep. of dance calls the day. No question about it. Yeah. At what point did you start to have to hold auditions to get dancers? I never held auditions until maybe I started doing auditions maybe the last five or eight or ten years at the most. Because you were just working with people you knew. Yes, and, then, like, and dancers I'd seen dance elsewhere or dancers <clears throat> my dancers would bring to me. And sometimes my first appearances with auditions were asking my dancers to bring dancers they right. would select right. for mm-hmm. me. Look at, that's how you were brought to me. Reed. Well, I heard from other people, actually, that they, I saw other people getting asked in class. Uh-huh. And so I heard that there was going to be this audition, and nobody was asking me, so I just called Tisha. Okay. <laughs> I just sent an email to the Lara Lubavitch whatever foundation, and then she was like, well, send a headshot. So I, I took it upon myself, because I knew, I knew it was like the right place for me to be. Well, now, see, that's, that's the old energy. You, you <laughs> saw something, you felt you belonged there. Obviously, you belong there because we click right away. Mm-hmm. We did beautiful work together. We still do beautiful work together. Doing it. We understand each other. Mm-hmm. I it, can't wait to see this duet. We had another <laughs> question around dancers. Oh, how did you collect? I mean, you've had some, some like a very eclectic group of people dance for you over the years, but how did you collect someone like Mark Morris or Doug Verone? Like, how did those people end up in your, in your sphere? Um, I have to remember. Um, Doug's teacher at Purchase, Doug Brown's teacher at Purchase, was Aaron Osborne. Mm-hmm. He'd been a Lamone dancer and a very fine dancer, and he was in my company. And then he became a teacher, and he sent Doug to me to audition. I don't... Pres- oh, I know where I found Mark. I was looking... I was <laughs> running around New York looking at various dance classes, so I was looking at dancers. And uh, I was a great admirer of Eric Hawkins, mm-hmm. someone whose work has been lost to time, one of the great choreographers of of the 20th century, and I went to see Eric Hawkins' class, which was a very unusual kind of class. No one taught the kind of class he did. It was the beginning of what they call release technique. He mm-hmm. actually founded it, but people don't realize that. And Mark was in the class. Wow. And I don't know how he found himself there, but I also discovered he was dancing in Elliot Feld's company. Mm-hmm. And Elliot Feld was known to me to always have great dancers. 
And if Elliot chose them and he trained them, I knew they were a terrific dancer. So I asked Mark to, to work with me. I was really hoping that when you said, I remember how I met Mark, I found him under an Andive leave in Versailles. <laughs> I really, I really, I really, that's what, where I was hoping we were going to go because it seems where Mark had come from. Well, it's funny you should say that because it was in his resume. What well, was? <laughs> that, that's where you mentioned that, that. That's where he came <laughs> from, found under an Andive leave in Versailles. <laughs> um, how... I mean, this is something that certainly you have you have made work about, and uh, I know I'm, I'm curious what was your experience then in terms of going through the AIDS crisis, both in as a human being and then as someone making work, having dancers and people that you were losing. Oh, I definitely had a profound influence, no question. I, I lost many people. We all lost many people at that time, and it hit particularly close one of my very best friends. I was tricked with AIDS. A wonderful dancer. He'd be my first company from 1968 on. His name was Ernest Pagnano. He became a wonderful teacher. Many people went to take his ballet class. And uh, he was tricked with AIDS. He was early, actually. A couple of my friends were when it just began. And um, I had kind of subtly wished that dance could be more than... Um, uh, equivalent of a beautiful arrangement on a cocktail table. And I said, every now and then it means so much more, and I've always endeavored for it to mean more than just beautifully decorative. Um, and then it really hit home that it had to be something beyond merely decorative. And I choreographed Concerto 622 because of it. And the duet in there became very well known, almost emblematic of the moment in time. And um, I... Um, took it upon myself to create Dance for Life, which was the first response from the dance world or theater world at all to AIDS. It was in 1986. Yes, I believe it was 1986. I'm better remembering years. And um, I called a meeting of dance managers. I had a loft at that time on 18th Street, Russell Loft. And about, um, about 16 or so managers came. These were all from modern dance companies, a couple of ballet companies, and I said, we have, let's all get together and do something about about this. We can't stay silent. And there was such a denial. There's so wow. many people in dance embarrassed that gay men were in their companies. You'd be amazed to know that. Um, and so that began what eventually became this first performance at New York State Theater, now Coke Theater, called Dance for Life. We eventually asked Jerome Robbins to be the artistic director of the program, and he did. And he assembled a program. And this duet I had done, I already premiered this dance at Carnegie Hall. Um, the whole dance? Yes. With live orchestra? With live orchestra. Oh, that's nice. And it was, um, it was, it was enormously successful evening for us. Uh, I don't know why I chose Carnegie Hall. No one danced there ever. But I did this wonderful program at Carnegie Hall. And uh, the dance was highly recognized. And so... Uh, Robbins asked that we put the duet in the Dance for Life, and the duet was so specific yeah. to to the moment that it, it was, had pretty thunderous um, response, and then became emblematic for many years, and has appeared on AIDS benefits the world over, and yeah. and so I had always felt dance should be more than just beautiful. Although beauty is plenty for me. To me, I could stop right there if you really asked me to. <laughs> but uh, I always longed for it to mean more and to be more relevant. And, and that was the first time I really insisted to myself that it would be relevant. And you did, I mean, both artistically, but also in terms of, I mean, now we have 
DRA, Dancers mm-hmm. Responding to AIDS, yes. and these and these other Broadway Cares Equity fights. Right. But it's um, amazing to hear that you were in the beginning of pushing that forward. And when eighty six, when was Into the Woods? Into the Woods. I'm so bad. I remember years. It was after that. It was after yeah, that. Yeah, okay. I think Into the Woods was late eighties. Because that would have also. I mean, I'm sure inside of that. I mean, because that was even a further. I mean, whether Sondheim talks about it too much or not. I mean, there's so much inside of that about uh, this thing is coming. You know, yeah. The giant. Of, uh, frequently discussed right. as I, I believe you can certainly look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. How did you end up in that <clears throat> Broadway world? Um, I would say that anything I've ever done in my life, I've done because someone asked me. <laughs> I never sent a resume. I never looked for a job. I never tried to inject myself into any circle or conversation. Um, but I, a lot of people asked me, a lot of good people, and I got to do a lot of good things. In this particular case, um, James Lapine, who was the director and writer of Into the Woods, also a dance fan, mm. and he, I believe he had already been on the board of Twilight Harps Company. And he saw a concert, and then he asked to meet with me. Oh. And uh, we discussed it, and I guess he must have liked what I said in response. He asked me, he sent me a script first, and hear any music, and then he wanted to know what my response would be. And I said that I would try to make dances that looked as though they came out of a children's book. Mm. So I guess that worked for him, and that's what I did. It was wow. so. Did you, and did you work with Bernadette on? Oh, very closely. Uh, I staged got, her performance in that is really. It's <laughs> remarkable. It's it's, yeah. it's an alpha performance Absolutely. for me. I mean, it changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> now, as it turned out, I'd never done what they call musical staging, but mm. most choreographers are naturally adept at that. Right. And, of course, musical staging is creating the movement for singers to do while they sing. Right. And um, I staged all of Bernadette's solo or duet numbers. The Last Midnight is everything. I staged The Last Midnight. <laughs> oh, Lars. Well, thank it's you, Jack. So, wow. It's really... <laughs> it's amazing. I wow. can't tell you how much, how many times I have watched that. When I, was, I saw it when I was in... in like a child, it was on PBS. I remember being yeah, on PBS. Yeah, it was on PBS. And I remember crying so hard. <laughs> I was like nine years old. Oh, but you're an easy sobbing, crier. I know that about you. Sobbing, hysterically <laughs> watching that solo and being like, "That is exactly what it's like." People are so nice. They're not good. They're not bad. They're just, just nice. nice. <laughs> it's How really soon the after worst. the uh, Into the Woods did the Red Shoes opportunity come up? Mm. Um. Again, I'm bad at years, but I think it must have been about maybe four years later. Mm-hmm. And actually, Jerome Robbins recommended me for that because he had been uh, watching my work mm-hmm. and, and he was, had been very kind to me, although he, he had it's deserved a reputation for cruelty, and yes. I witnessed those cruelties. He had invited me some rehearsals from time to time at New York City Ballet, and I saw firsthand How what, cruel what, what cruelty really was yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. But he was very kind to me. And uh, he recommended me for, for the Red Shoes to Julie Stein, the, the, the great uh, composer, yeah. great songwriter. Yeah, that's so... I think that was 92, something like that. Right. 92. And that ended up being kind of a debacle. Huh? Oh, total. It's like one of those historic bombs... Yeah. And was that like a great Carrie. disappointment? It's, yeah, it's on the Carrie, short list of biggest bombs ever. Carrie and Red Shoes are up there yeah. as... I mean, but Carrie's amazing. Was that painful <laughs> for you, Laura? Um... It was, uh, yeah, so I was very sorry because... Were I, you the director of the show or just no, the choreographer? No, 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 I was choreographer. choreographer. Uh, the original director was a wonderful woman named Susan Shulman, 
who had directed prominently in Broadway already. And then she was fired uh, unceremoniously by the producer, who was um, a kind of a, you might say, central casting, mm-hmm. evil-minded producer. Mm-hmm. And he brought in Stanley Donnan, one of those famous movie makers of musicals in history. Mm-hmm. He had done God Singing in the Rain and oh, wow. Daddy Long Legs and oh, just these amazing musicals. And he had brought in direct. Unfortunately, he had never directed live stage before. Oh, and he could not do it to save his life. He tried, oh. and he was mean as the day is long. Yeah. He was unbelievably mean to everyone. Oh, Broadway. You know, there's that great expression, money walks in and art walks out. <laughs> it really, it really, it's, you know, we can see it on and on. And then how, so around, and then in the 90s, when were you starting Chicago Dance Festival? Chicago Dance Festival... Uh, went for 10 years, and uh, one year ago, this last summer, was its 10th and final season. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that was, okay, so about in the aughts then. So yeah. it began in yeah. the aughts. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And did you know that Laura also has choreographed ice skating? I think I did know that from you. <laughs> Who did you choreograph ice skating? Quite a lot, yeah. <laughs> These, and they would just ring you up. They'd yeah, be like, hey, yeah. I love your choreography. I'm on skates. Well, this, <laughs> so. Yeah, that is exactly what happened. Had you ever done However, ice skating? the guy on skate happened to be John Curry, oh, yeah. one of the greatest Olympic yeah. gold medalists ever. Yeah. And he was changing skating at the time. He was introducing dance vocabulary and enlarging what could be done on ice by a soloist. And he was looking for choreographers because he's forming an ice dance company. And he came and saw a concert of mine. It was North Star, actually. And he said, well, that looked to me like ice skating because it's so fluid and and curvaceous. And and so he asked me to choreograph for him. So I choreographed a duet for John Curry and Peggy Fleming. And when you choreographed ice skating, did you have studio time before the rink? No. So they were on their skates right right away. Right to the rink, And what was that like? Had you worked with people on ice skates before? Had you ice? So you just... I ice skated as a kid, but not not to Oh, did you go back to the... Did you skate a little before rehearsal to be like, what does this feel like? No, I wore... just go for it. (laughs) I wore shoes with metal cleats on them so I could walk on the ice without falling. But I had to resort to choreographing with my eyes. Right. Right. My, much more than with my body right. and ask them to do things and show me things and ice skating vocabulary is very very small they're actually only about seven steps hmm. seven nameable steps right. but there's you know, tricks that they're going to need to do yeah. and, and beautiful yeah. lifts and as well as you know grab yes. her hand and now but she's going to take her we didn't do any of those tricks not for competition this was for a show these were for oh, ice shows sure. yeah. oh. I didn't okay. ever choreograph competitive routines because okay. I don't know enough about Right. The I see, points. I see, I see. And the rules are so limiting that right. that's why they all look like they're doing the same routine right, right. and a few joining steps that right. differentiate right. them, but right. they all so much the same. Right. I did a, a full-length Sleeping Beauty on Ice with uh, Rosalind Summers and, Ro- and Ro- um, Robin Cousins, <laughs> which is, you can <laughs> get, amazing. it's a very, very beautiful uh, piece. And I did a full-length piece to Gustav Holt's The Planets oh, yeah. on film for a Canadian company that starred a lot of major skaters at the time. And Doug choreographed the, like, Yes, that's right. Parts. I hired Doug as a co-choreographer because it was a, a piece that I conceived that had dancing and ice skating. Right. And I hired Doug Verone to do the dancing part, mm. and I did all the ice skating choreography. Wow. It's, it's it's really I mean <laughs> Laura something that Reed and I have discussed uh, that we love and that I'm I will say is just how much you have done in terms of being 
uh, curious, multi-pronged, and saying yes. That you, as you said, you didn't look to inject yourself into these things. You were asked. And that you said yes and went forward and did it. Well, you're using the key word. I don't think I've ever said no. That's (laughs) so amazing. Because if someone wanted me, then I'm gonna be. I'm gonna go because what's better than being wanted? You know. That's wow. so beautiful, Laura, and it's so generous. It's really, it's this thing of, of um, I think a, it's a generosity of spirit that you have. Also, the way that you, uh, I mean, and I was thinking about when you came to see Night Light, Bright Light, and how you talked to me after that show. How we had lunch later, like a, a week later. Um, it was from that show, actually, that I met you and Parker Posey. You were mm. two people who really showed up to that event of being, of um, not letting this event of a review detract from what the experience had been and, uh, and affirming what had actually happened in the room with the audience and how you go to see everything, how you go, go to see like my friend Beth Gill, that that's happening or, right. or Roseanne's work or that you have stayed so curious and avid. And it goes back to early in this discussion when I was asking about the polarities between disciplines and you said, well, that's very sad. And that's something that that kind of sorrow is so not in your life that that's so inspiring. It's I love some... I love dance, even at clearly, my, yeah. even at my age and with everything that I've done, I can still be completely overwhelmed and swept away by a beautiful act of dance. It's happened to me recently. I, I was just was absolutely blown away by things recently that I've seen, and I'm so glad I'm so capable of that because mm-hmm. if I lost that, I don't know where I'd find my joy. How has your how has the art of creating changed for you over time? Mm. Well, the stakes get higher and higher each time because if you create, you always want to move further the next time. You always want to advance. You always want to do better. Mm. You want to do something you haven't done before. It doesn't matter if somebody else has done it. This is my trajectory. This is my journey. I've got to do something I haven't done before. So if the stakes become higher, it becomes uh, much harder to imagine further and my body has been quitting for some time. Mm-hmm. So I've had to um, compensate for that as best I can by counting other, other people's bodies, people who know my work and work with me for many years. Um, it's tried and true. Many people use dance assistance, of course. And um, tried to evolve new techniques of making dances that mm-hmm. have been utilized by younger choreographers whose works I've admired. Mm-hmm. When I started choreographing, you had to make up every step. Mm-hmm. If you put your name on it, you had to make up every step. It was just a moral imperative. It just, it wasn't even to be questioned. If your name was on it, you made it up. There are choreographers now who just sit in a chair and the dancers deliver all of the movement. Reed and I talk about it all the time. But I, it is... I, I'm not casting aspersions. Right. I admire that. Right. They're using their eyes. They're using a sense of orchestration. They're creating in a, politically different atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, which is, on, on the one hand, either consciously or unconsciously, opposed to the authoritarian dictatorship of the old method mm-hmm. of dance, where one man, one woman, you know, said everything and everyone had to obey. All, all of this is great. It bodes well for how widely dance can stretch. Yeah. And I love those n- new ideas, and I love new right. ideas. Right. And so I... I have tried as well to expand my ways of making dances. And I think making dance in that way of of the of a democratic room that you're talking about, I'm really pro that or, mm-hmm. or having people 
do movement that the one's own body. I mean, certainly if, if I'm gesturing for something for Reed, my leg is going to go very minimal, whereas Reed's <laughs> leg is going to go to the maximum. So I think that that's that's not what my where my, any of my conflict came from comes from. It's when people literally make it all up and yeah. like someone else. But that's called being a producer, and that's you know that's yeah. well. Then call place. yourself producer exactly, <laughs> and that exactly. is exactly thank and, you. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. this is the result. There are a group of people doing that, and all of their works look the same. Hi. You can't yeah. Yeah. know the choreographer yeah. right. because they haven't found or evolved a voice that is theirs and theirs alone. There is no question when you see Martha Graham dance, right. you don't have to ask who choreographed right. this, yeah. or a Balanchine dance, yeah. or a Limon dance, yeah. or many choreographers since. I don't yeah. need to always go back to the, to the pioneers, but, right. but all of these dances look alike now. Yeah. You can just yeah. change the heads, and and yeah. one of the reasons is because many of them are using all the same dancers, and the right. dancers are making up the work. Right. Really How has that important. affected you over the years when like a muse comes in and then a muse comes out? Like, how does it affect you in terms of your desire to make the work, or how does it affect the actual choreography? Like, mm. can a, does a person, like a specific person, have a profound effect on the outcome of the Absolutely. choreography? My my dances are always about the dancers that are in the room with me at that time making mm. the dance. I I draw from their gestalt. I I I draw from their poetry, um, and it really is about the dancers in the room. Even though I come up with an idea, I come up with music. I have some vague idea of the way I'd like to illuminate this music. Mm. Um, seeing those people in front of me is why I make the dance. Sometimes it's because I find them to be such marvelous dancers, I just want to see them dance. Yeah. So I yeah. just create reams of movement for them to do, and then they show me what meaning it might have. Right. And if I have those kind of dancers, I don't even choreograph to the music. I choreograph. I know the music very well. When I come in, I've listened to it hundreds of times. I don't need to play it anymore. And so I'll choreograph a lot of movement, and then I'll say, now I'm going to put the music on, but please don't pay attention to it, just dance. Mm. Don't worry, let the movement fall where it falls. And these marvelous, intuitive, gifted, poetic dancers invariably find the heart of the music for me. So I don't have to do that anymore. So it really is about them. What is, go ahead. What is the next piece coming up? Well, I have a, if you can say. Well, I've choreographed a dance which has not been seen yet, which is aimed to premiere at um, my 50th anniversary season in April at the Joyce. April uh, when? Uh, we're opening April 17th. Okay, great, because my show's the 4th through the 7th, so oh. great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and um, it's, I'm changing the name. I'm, Reed has designed costumes for a dance which I was previously calling Wanderers, but I decided to throw the name out. I'm telling Reed for the first time now. We're going to find out. It has a new title because I think the name was a little limiting and too suggestive of a certain dramatic intent. Right. And so I I need to find a new new name to to, to symbolize the dance. But it will have its official premiere, though it actually has been choreographed, and I'm probably enlarging it. It's just a trio now, but I think it will become a quintet by, by the time April rolls around to some... Very, very little known, very beautiful uh, Schubert uh, songs for male choir. Love Schubert. Is there, I'm going to go back to dancers again. Okay, because you you were one. Uh uh Is one. Is one, yeah. Is there, 
is there something that you can see through the history of your dancers that's a common thread, like qualitatively? What is hmm. it that you look for, or is it just something individual for everybody? Um, one part of that answer is unanswerable because it's a it's an unknown thing that just takes place within. And I heard Pam Tanowitz say it the other day at a lecture demonstration. She said she has to fall in love with the dancer. Absolutely. I understood that completely. I totally understand what that means. And I do have to fall in love with the dancer. Many dancers at the same time. I can, people can show my love. <laughs> one person. Yeah. And I think I fall in love with them because they have an intuitive expressivity that moves me in some subtle way. I, I don't think I can articulate it entirely. They have to have a great physical skill. My work is very difficult. So it starts there. My work is very hard to do mm -hmm. physically. Mm -hmm. Given the skill as you know, the underlayment, the overlayer has to be this um, spirit of expressivity mm -hmm. that, that something can be said by the movement I put together that's more than I had intended. Right. That's funny you say that your work require I get it really does require an enormous amount of skill, but it's very coming into it. I feel like I came into it at a point when I had acquired many different kinds of skills and then coming into your work of after a little while it was really easy. There was something in it like having a really thorough foundation that made the work really easy. I don't know why. Well, and that, that reminds me of the thing that Martha said of when, at your, when you're in your peak and dancing and also coming from a foundation. It's, a, it's the thing that it can have a sense of effortlessness right. that because the dialoguing is becoming intuitive. I mean, the thing that I would say, it's, it's very difficult, but there's a real nuance as well. To your work and that part is just as difficult as the, how hard it is to do physically right. the nuance of the quality of the movement well it's all in the transition yeah i always say it's not the steps it's how you get from one of them to the other right. That, right that's what gives it but the most wonderful dancers in the world feel awkward and disabled by poor choreography right. and cannot look good or feel right, right. doing it right. Right. and if i had to you know openly to admit of a skill i believe i have I believe one of my skills is knowing what step follows what step. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that. I know how to get from point A, B, A to point A to point B, and I think the dancer's body tells me that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I know by looking that it's the right next thing to do, and the dancer knows by doing yeah. that's the right next thing to do, and that's why it becomes easier. Yeah, and it's very clear that it's a conversation. Yeah, oh, and in, absolutely. In the context of my own dancing, I feel like the time I spend performing for you are some of the only times where I've been able to feel really free on stage, like unencumbered by any any tasks that are going to be overly, that are too scary or that I'm nervous about because there's something, there's a line in the, in the dance that just keeps it all moving from one to the next. But that's how you make it. You go from one to two and two to three and I three do. to four. I do. And I don't um, evolve experimental strings of steps. I, I go from step to step to make sure that it's fluid. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's kind of corny. I think it's considered kind of old-fashioned, but but I do love fluid movement. I like it to flow in a very natural way out of the dancer's body. 
I like the seamlessness of that quality. Mm -hmm. uh, Old-fashioned, newfangled, who gives a fuck? You know, this is what I do. I can't help it. Right. You know, I just got to stick to who I am. That's why when I do one, I'll be the solo from North Star. Uh, <laughs> Lord knows I'm not the most fluid of dancers. Laura, how many, do you know by, how by many? By the way, Jeff, yeah. that solo is called The Brain. Well, and, the, and there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> Say moi. Okay. Um, what it, do you know how many dances you've made? I stopped counting, but it's it's over 110, 120 maybe, oh, something like that. That's so amazing. And it, then if we were to it, consider... It's probably more than that, because I'm not counting the ice skating dances. Right, I was just going to say, if, the, we were, if we were to count, you know, a little musical called um, yeah. Into the Woods, etc., yeah. or, you know, a movie that you did for... Yeah. Um, Robert Altman. Robert Altman. You know, just these little things here and there, these little side projects. I mean, it's so incredible, the expanse of it. And to go back to something you said earlier... Uh, it is your yes and your generosity of spirit is is really something that I, I I hope that people take away from listening to this because it we are clearly in a time where generosity is um, it's something I look for the most in people I would say the things the things that I find to be so rare are kindness mm -hmm. and generosity well, under the juggernaut of capitalism mm -hmm. terror Indeed. and. Uh, it, and you have them in spades, and it's so beautiful. I thank you so much. It's I, what makes you. It's what makes a, a great artist I, a, a I think, great. I think artist. we live in a times when the old values are embarrassing to people. They're afraid to admit to them, mm -hmm. to admit to soft hearts and, mm -hmm. and generous sensations and mm -hmm. um, love of beauty and sentimentality. Uh, sentimentality. It's been out for a long time. Yeah. You know, irony is the thing of the day. Yeah. Uh, sometimes irony. Just, I'm just so. With it's it. tedious. You know, just if you feel something, feel it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. admit to it. It's yeah. there. It's a human uh, gift. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But um, I think you know. sentimentality is coming back around. I that's I <laughs> I think I think that. Well, maybe I'll get rediscovered then. Narrative <laughs> and sentimentality are coming. I think they're coming back around. I mean, it's something that I that uh, it, it meant the world to me in theater. And well, your, it meant the your world work to me. wears its heart on its sleeve from, yeah. from first to last, no question yeah. about it. Yeah, and I, yeah. it is, it is the, and that quality and another, something else that I, I appreciate so much about you is vulnerability, yeah. is something that, and when you said that you still can feel hurt by a, a negative review or all of those things, I mean, it is, and in, in my own hope to dismiss that I have that but I do it is a thing of vulnerability which is another quality that I think is it's imperative for art making I am I I it's so easy to destroy it's so easy to be hideous mm -hmm. it's so hard to be generous to be kind to be vulnerable and intimate yeah and, and not only that this. as someone who has been in processes with you it's your self-awareness of mm -hmm. your own insecurities and of like other people's insecurities and what it means to be a dancer that's allowed allows the process to be very generous and very kind and and is a process for adult dancers where you don't walk in and feel infantilized mm. or mm. or threatened and so for me like I think I was at a place in my dancing where I wasn't interested in being in a company anymore you really but are. I definitely always looked forward to being involved in your processes uh, even at a point when I was like dance companies are are bad places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It I, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah. You, you really did. Laura, thank you so much for coming to be with us. It's been so wonderful. My pleasure. And I can't wait to see been you an soon. enormous ego boost. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Well, well, anytime you're feeling down, ring me up and we'll get a coffee. <laughs> Laura, what are you watching on TV right now? <laughs> um, 
over and over as many episodes of um, Law and Order Special Victims Unit <laughs> as I can possibly see. Uh-huh. I am a total worshiper of Mariska Hargaday, uh-huh. and uh, I will I will watch those same episodes over and over, even if they're not new ones. Well, you heard it here first. Law and Order, when you need a choreographer, <laughs> Lara Lubavitch would be the one to call. He knows the work. He knows the work, and clearly he can do everything. <laughs> Anyways, thank you, Lara. We love you. We love you so much. Right back at you. Do you know what I like to talk about now? Food. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah. You know what I just, I sent Gideon and this friend of mine who I'll call Nun Mary to uh, a restaurant last night that you turned me on to, which is her name is Han. So good. Delicious. I want to go there right now. Charming. It's so cold. I feel like they have wooden utensils or something. Oh, it's so warm. I just want to like get in a cab and, and hate, go right there. What oh, do you hate? I hate putting like raw wood utensils in my mouth. Like when they give you a disposable spoon for a like a little, like an Italian ice, and it's like one of those little wood spoons. Mm-hmm. Ooh, you know made, what else I, I hate that reminds me of that? Sick. Is um, one of those like recycled paper straws. That Have you ever had that? What? I so upstate, sometimes when you get a really expensive iced coffee, you get a paper straw with it, which decomposes in, you know, like five sips. So the tip of the straw is Ew. like, and then you're trying to suck your coffee through it, but it's like all bunched and you can't quite get your coffee through it. It's disgusting. It's so gross. Which reminds me of when I was a kid, I would feel so grossed out at a certain point by a push pop. You know? Because your finger would get all insane (laughs) from the spit that goes through the crack. But it's like a poorly designed object. I mean, that finger would just be a nightmare. Oh, right. You're thinking of the the, um, lollipop one. I was thinking of the ice cream one oh, that you would push up, yeah, 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 and then yeah, the like yeah. cardboard carton thing would like dissolve around Completely. it, and you'd be like, and be like, don't push me, push a push pop, <laughs> don't push me, push a push pop. I l- that's an ad that should come back. Absolutely, would like a fierce bully like pushes someone, and they need to just swing around and be like, don't push me, push a push pop, and, and it's the, some like and the young bull- queen, and the bully's like fuck you, faggot, and then goes to punch the kid, and the kid just, like, takes a push pop and jams it in the bully's eye and kills him. Yes. That's what I want to see. Violence. Yes, violence commerciales to represent the the time that we live in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess you're going to get to (laughs) We can't. That might be all we got, you guys. We've truly lost our minds. Well, we interviewed Laura for a long time. I'm very. You know what? As tired as I am about the fall, I'm thrilled. You're thrilled by the cold and the fall and stuff. I like it. I like to put on a scarf and a coat. Mm, It's much better than like walking outside and being like, I'm sick. Sick with what? Heat. Oh, with heat. I don't... I loved that video of all those people fainting. (gasps) Oh, that's what I had to talk to you about today. Wendy Williams passing out. So good. It was so incredible. I literally was like, this is wonderful. I can't tell you how many times me and every single gay person watched that, which it's just a lot. There's something to have, like, eventually she faints in the classic way of, like, hand to head, eyes roll back, and you go down. And so after having watched that, you know, I think I watched it, you know, like, just a mild 850 times, because it's only, like, a 30-second clip. It, the next thing that comes up on YouTube is five minutes of people passing out. So Let good. me tell you, watching men pass out is a thrill. I fainted. Have you fainted? I'm sure. You know what I mean? Really? Don't you think? You would know. I did once. I do remember now. I remember passing out an interlocking from 
Dehydration. Uh, they said I had a fever of 103, oh. and I was doing two shows. I passed, I fainted, but once. it felt very normal. I fainted in Canada because right before mm. I left, I was like, I better get my wisdom teeth out before I lose this good insurance. So mm. I I had my wisdom teeth out, and I opted to have just local anesthetic. Mm. So I because I need to keep packing because I had to move like two days. I had to leave Canada two days later. So got all my teeth yanked out, and then I spent the rest of the day. Packing boxes work. So you had the teeth inked out, and they were like, "And now I'm gonna go pack." I packed, and or I did. You do like duct tape ice packs to your face? During no, that? I was fine. I but I I I was like, Ugh. you know, I had smoothies, whatever. I was trying to stay hydrated, and but I bled the whole day. You know, mm-hmm. like as yeah. you do. Bye. Bye. Changed iron. out my gauzes all the time, uh-huh. and in the evening, I read the list of foods that I was allowed to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, through my front teeth. And one of them was pasta, and I thought, amazing. So we went out to a restaurant. We have pasta right now. Mm. <laughs> went out with a group of friends, and we were sitting in like a, a banquette. So I was yes. I was sitting between two people, thankfully. be cushioned. At a certain point, I just scarfed down this whole plate of pasta, just like nibbled it through my front teeth because you couldn't go to the backs, and I because I was starved. Mm. And then at a certain point after finishing it, I was like, I feel weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to like I didn't want to tell people because I was we never tell anyone anything the yeah. worst thing could happen to you and mm-hmm. so then I went <laughs> Jack is making noise so then that I was like me crazy I I started to get tunnel vision I started to have ringing in my ears tunnel vision like where you saw it get black around the whole thing yeah it's like you uh. go into like a kind of translucent cave mm. so everything gets kind of far away mm-hmm. and I was like this is bad I was like <laughs> I might be about to die so mm. I I just looked out into the table and mm. I made an announcement I was like I don't feel well and then I don't remember the next part because the next thing I remember is someone had their hand on my neck uh-huh. and I was soaking wet uh-huh. and so I made I, I just remember like I remember kind of coming to and being humiliated that I'd fallen asleep yeah. at the dinner table <laughs> and I was like quote unquote fallen asleep and I was like I wonder if I could just slowly rise up and they won't know that I've been sleeping <laughs> so I felt these someone's hand on my neck and I just remember like grabbing their hand and removing it and being like I don't want that Yeah. and then like I kind of opened my eyes thinking like maybe they won't know and like everybody was looking at me and I was like, mm. I was like, I fainted, question mark. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, whoa, that's cool. Why were you wet? That's what happens when you faint. Oh, you your, just sweat? Your body like drowns itself to wake you up. Oh, yeah. who? No, did you pee yourself? Oh, no, no. Your body just full sweats, like insane. Uh-huh. Wet. So, but fortunately, your head didn't smash into your plate. Oh, no, they had me. They, they caught me. They grabbed you because you were probably going to go forward. I did go forward. But uh-huh. it was, you know how my neck does. I slump. Yeah, well, I've, I have well, a lot I've, of I've flexibility been next to you there. While you fall asleep in public yeah. numerous times. But then I, you know, just drank some water. And I'm glad it happened. I got to think about it. Uh-huh. My friend Laurel faints a lot. She has a lot oh, of really? good stories. Yeah, like. Has she ever fainted on stage? I don't think so mm-hmm. but one time she was on a plane mm. this is in recent years mm-hmm. and she was on her period mm-hmm. so she was kind of like oh boy and that's like the blood. times when mm-hmm. she really faints mm-hmm. Lack of she blood. was sitting next to a man she might have been sick or she was on her period I can't mm-hmm. remember but they were they were up in the air and she didn't know the man sitting next to her but she knew it was about to happen mm-hmm. so she just turned to him and she was like hello um, I'm going to faint now 
and <laughs> I was wondering if I could put my head on your shoulder. Uh-huh. And he was like, uh, okay. So she just like nestled into him knowing she was about to faint. Her. And then Laura. she fainted. And the next thing she knows is she comes to and Fully she wet. soaked his shirt uh-huh. with her head. Uh-huh. And she just was like, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> and what did he say? I think he was like, uh-huh. I think he was kind of like doing his due diligence, but right. no She's more like, than that. Can I have some more cocktail peanuts, please? <laughs> yeah. And um, adding a whiskey, just what have you. I mean, these... Watching watching that five-minute video of people passing out, it was really... And then the next thing that happened was I watched a five-minute video of people um, having a escalator things. What's that? Well, what's, what's an escalator thing? They were... I had to get these lights back on in this room we're in. It was, um, it was people being like, let's have fun on the escalator. Mm. And then there's this thing that you can do at the end of the escalator, which is if you lay your body on that the end of it, you know, where the where one begins. If you lay your body on it, you'll start to turn around. Like if you lay in a plank, something going down and something going up will make you Until just turn around. Until your hair gets caught in the crack or Well, something. what ends up happening is these big guys Go around, ahead. you know, these big guys keep doing it. It happens numerous times where then the guy kind of like falls between the spaces and the glass just shatters and breaks and the handrail like explodes. It's really so I watched that for a little bit too. These were you know, instead of going to the gym today. That's good. That was my gym. And I laughed and laughed. I there was this one that really got me. The faint the one the one with the skis. Um, you loved the skis where I she faints but because she's in skis, but her knees just bend. But and, she I feel like she was also like, did she say like I'm gonna pass out? No, she sits up and she goes, Guess I slipped in these skis. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like she makes it be about something that, like very similar to you being like, I think I fell asleep at the table. Yeah. Being there's this one of this girl on the red carpet, just goodbye, she just goes down. And the woman to make up for it's like, uh, some high heel problems. Oh, high heel problems. Are. I don't remember that. And one. also, there's this one where uh, the woman passed, it's an, there's a lot of news anchors who pass out yeah. in this five minute clip. Check it out. And um, there's she, this woman passes out, and the whole, because she falls backwards, the whole stage collapses on her. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the news anchor, the other, this woman who's a news anchor in front of her, doesn't turn around, doesn't <laughs> look back, just stays facing straight out front to camera, just being like, I gotta keep Wait, going. what was Wendy Williams' like word f- flip? She was trying to say oh, something, but it was she ended so, up. She saying... goes, "Our first guest," and she goes, "Our first caress." <laughs> I like that as she's going out, her brain is she's putting guests together, but it goes to caress. And then it's like only after that that she realizes something bad is happening, and she her puts, eyes get really big. Well, and she she's puts like, her, oh, she like no. sucks her lips together. <laughs> she, oh boy, here she we go. Really, she's like. And she looks so afraid. And what's also so great is she's dressed as Lady Liberty. So it's really like, goodbye, Lady Liberty. It's true. We're in a terrifying time. The the size of her eyeball in that moment, she's like, yeah, she looks like she has seen something so terrifying. She's seen her own demise. It's so incredible. And when I first saw it, because the sound was off and it was, you know, on Instagram or whatever, I just thought it was like a gag. Like she was like, I'm Lady Liberty, terrified by the state of the country and I'm passing out. And then when I realized it was true, that's when I really watched it. Enumerate times. I have to go to work now. Well, I must. Great, me too. Let's go to work. And for all the rest of you in New York who don't have real jobs, why don't you send us emails about how you fill your days? <laughs> or do you really want that? You want to open all those and well, read them? Read You're going to read them, them and good. respond? I like reading. Th- Jack, please. Oh. Two people are going to reply or none. 
Do you okay. know what I mean? You know, our ones and twos. Ones and, and twos. twos of listeners. Well, we loves you. We loves you. Jeremy's and, going to Thailand. Ah, uh, Jeremy's going to Thailand. It's going to be warm. He's going to be eating mm, cilantro and leaves and yeah. noodles. Yeah. It's going to be so good. So good. And I'm going to be like, I'm cold and I don't know what to eat. My boyfriend's gone. I'll just like uh, walk around. So I'm going to eat roasted peanuts right now and water that tastes like rice. <laughs> Maybe you can go get that. Uh, I gotta go. I love you, Reed. And yep. we'll see you soon. We'll see you soon with probably Bye. another guest. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 Oh.